0: Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast, Extra Edition. My name is Jamie Club. These shows are miscellaneous recordings that I felt you might like included in your regular podcast feed. They include video soundtracks. Interviews, readings of my essays, material directly connected to my books and other audio work that should not be considered part of the regular podcast show. As with my regular show, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and if you enjoy the content, a positive rating and review on your preferred online sharing platform would be gratefully received. Don't forget to check out the Club Chimera website at clubchimera.com for more free content and details on upcoming events. We can also be liked, followed and subscribed to on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. I hope you enjoy the show. According to the website Discover Los Angeles, quote, When it comes to Halloween, the City of Angels knows how to have a devil of a good time. From the world's largest Halloween street party to family-friendly Halloween events at museums and other cultural institutions, Los Angeles attractions, tours and parties offer fiendish fun and spooky scares for everyone, end quote. We shouldn't be surprised. The city is the home of Hollywood, which has produced more than its fair share of chillingly entertaining additions to what has become a fun celebration. Yet, on the 31st of October 1979, California would witness the last horrifying action of a reign of terror that had begun in June that year. This case serves as a dark lesson in situational awareness and prompts many troubling questions about self-defense. 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, was on her way home from a Halloween party in the LA suburb of Sunland, Jujunga. Like many of her peers, Shirley decided to hitchhike home. A silver GMC cargo van pulled up outside the gas station where Shirley was standing. She recognised the owner of the vehicle, Lawrence Bittaker, as a frequenter of the diner where Shirley worked part-time as a waitress and accepted their offer of a ride home. Bittaker was accompanied by another man, Roy Norris. Norris had contributed towards buying the vehicle back in February. It was a vehicle specifically bought for a purpose. The abduction of young girls and the vile pair had even given it a nickname, Murder Mac. Shirley's body would be found by a jogger the next morning on a bed of ivy of a lawn of a house in Sunland. This crime and the four that preceded it would earn the murderers the media nickname, The Toolbox Killers, because of the way they conducted their dreadful crimes. It was a title the media had probably latched onto from a low budget exploitative slasher film that bore the name the Toolbox Murders, and had been released one year previously. In hindsight, it is quite eerie and scarily prophetic to think that the movie had been marketed with a dubious tagline, based on a true story. The title was acquired after a jury endured listening to a 17-minute recording the two killers had made of Shirley Ledford's torture and murder. Prior to pressing play, Prosecutor Stephen Kaye warned the jury at Whittaker's trial, quote, For those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. End quote. As those listening for the first time reacted with tears in their eyes and burying their faces in their hands, Bittaker grinned. When questioned by the media over his decision to play the tape and the traumatic consequences it would have on those in the courtroom, Kay, who had left the courtroom in tears after it had been played, said, quote, You're darn right it should have been played. The jury needs to know what these guys did. End quote. Last year, I recounted the crimes of the two ghoulish killers, William Burke and William Hare, whose final murder on Halloween also brought their infamous careers to an end. Despite the fact the Californian cases were also committed by a duo of opportunistic predators, the nature of these murders was quite different from Burke and Hare's. However, there is one single similarity outside of the fact that their last murder occurred on Halloween. Like William Hare, Roy Norris did not hesitate in turning on his accomplice in crime, Lawrence Bittaker, when it came to saving his own neck. We're often told of the trust and intimate connection between such partnerships, but such romantic ideas seem to be so much nonsense when many criminals are faced with a choice between self-preservation and loyalty. Norris succeeded in being absolved both from the death penalty and life imprisonment without parole. He has yet to be released, but Bittico has resided on death row since the conclusion of their trial. Like Hare and other disloyal serial killing partners, Norris did his best to shift the worst aspects of the crimes onto the other killer. Norris makes the doubtful claim that he wasn't interested in torturing or killing the victims, that Bittaker was the real sadist, and he had regularly suggested that victims should be let go, and that at least one of them should be spared a slow death. However, what should be remembered that before they met, Norris and not Bittaker had already been convicted of several violent sexual offences. Not long after his release, Bitaker earned a reputation for being kind and generous, He donated money to the Salvation Army and apparently even purchased large quantities of fast food to feed the homeless in downtown Los Angeles. Likewise, many contemporaries of Burke and Hare have said that Burke was a popular personality and Hare was the more dislikable and had a reputation for violence. Nevertheless, such similarities really end there. Whereas the Edinburgh killers were the perverse symptoms of an archaic law and extreme poverty, which made it easy for them to take advantage of their downtrodden neighbours and sell their newly murdered bodies to an anatomy college that was forbidden from taking the unclaimed cadavers of those who had died from natural causes, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris slew for pleasure in the Golden State. The Birkenhare crimes occurred in an age that appears so distant that films based on their crimes have evolved from chilling horrors to black comedies. Bitteker and Norris are still alive at the time this podcast has been recorded and serve as a constant reminder of the dangers faced by those who walk alone and the inherent risk of hitchhiking. The act of hitchhiking also known as thumbing a lift or simply hitching can be traced back to the mass production of automobiles in 1920s USA. This period is where we first hear of the practice along with a description of hitchhikers sticking out their thumb gesturing the direction they wish to travel. With the fallout of the Wall Street Crash and the Great Depression, newfound necessity saw an unsurprising rise in hitchhiking. And there are photos from this period of people standing beside a road making the familiar thumb gesture. Hitchhiking, as we know it, is an institution and culture of the United States that soon spread over to Europe where it is even actively encouraged in some places. By most accounts, the 1970s saw hitchhiking reach its peak. The reason for its popularity might be put down to several factors. Firstly, the obvious ones are that populations had increased, as had vehicles and as had roads. People were on the move more than ever. Secondly, much of the Western world, certainly North America and especially California, had experienced the 1960s counterculture teenage phenomenon. The summer of love might have been over and the onset of its subcultural backlash might have been on the horizon by the mid-70s, but there was still the drive for young people to travel, explore and meet up at various places further afield. The youth were more connected by fashion, music and various ideas than ever before, and also wanted to connect more. Hitchhiking seemed to provide the ideal way to transport the free and seeking teenager, reliant only on the kindness of strangers. Although not all hitchhiking lifts are free, its overall success as a means for transporting large numbers of individuals is a good argument for the human race's altruistic nature. Some of those who champion hitchhiking and aggressively defend its practice have suggested a combination of scaremongering and capitalist selfishness in the 1980s for its decline since the 70s. I'm not so sure it's as simple as that. By the mid-1980s, there would be a much larger awareness of human predators that targeted hitchhikers. As hitchhiking increased, so would opportunities open up for certain human predators. Taking advantage of a trusting and adventurous generation of youngsters, some of the worst crimes in history would be tied to the culture of thumbing a ride. Two years prior to the toolbox killings, Patrick Kernley, the freeway killer, had been brought to justice. Kernley's murders, which might be as high as 43 according to law enforcement authorities, also occurred in California. He targeted solitary male hitchhikers. While Kernley was committing his crimes and years before his arrest, two other serial killers hit the headlines in the 1970s. Over in Houston, Texas, between 1970 and 1973, Dean Call, sometimes known as the Candy Man and the Pied Piper, abducted and murdered at least 28 teenage boys and young men. He took hitchhikers, often relying on two much younger accomplices, being acquainted with the victims. He avoided being arrested when one of his two accomplices decided he'd had enough and shot Call dead. From 1972 to 1973, the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, mainly targeted hitchhiking college girls again in California. Then, in 1984, Colleen Stan, who described herself as an experienced hitchhiker, escaped her seven years' imprisonment at the hands of the couple Cameron and Janice Hooker. She had been held as a captive sex slave in Red Bluff, California. Colleen Stan had been kidnapped whilst hitching, and after turning down two previous offers of a lift, somewhat reinforcing the view that it can be very difficult to spot predators in these situations. Her story, which has had a considerable cultural impact through television, feature films, literature and music, might have delivered a decisive blow that sent hitchhiking into a steep decline. The toolbox killings provide a greater insight into the way aggressive predators, especially those operating in pairs, work and it is not just the trusting hitchhiker who can learn from their crimes. Bittica and Norris met when they were both doing time at San Luis Obispo's men's colony. Bittica got his surname from his adopted parents, but was disowned by them when he was 18. Norris technically grew up with his biological parents, but spent a lot of time between foster parents. Bittica had acquired a lengthy criminal record since he was 12 years old, starting with shoplifting and petty theft, graduating to stealing cars and becoming involved in a hit and run. Bitteker repeatedly committed crimes whenever he was released on parole. He stole cars, robbed and was involved in another hit and run throughout the 1960s. Early on, prison psychiatrists determined him to be highly manipulative and concealing a lot of hostility. Later on, two psychiatrists independently diagnosed him as a borderline psychopath. By the time he met Norris, he had been convicted for assault with an attempt to commit murder. Norris's early misdemeanours appeared to have centred on his tumultuous relationship with his parents. However, his early twenties were marked by a string of sexual offences. Like several of the rogue sheepdogs we covered in our Order of St. Guinea 4 podcast, Norris was a good soldier and was honourably discharged before he was arrested for rape and attempt to commit rape. A military psychologist diagnosed him with a severe schizoid personality. Like Bittaker, Norris did not wait long to re-offend. His next assault on a woman was a violent one, which he carried out whilst on bail. After being imprisoned in a prison hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender for five years, he was eventually declared by doctors to be, quote, no further danger to others, unquote, and put on a five-year parole. It took him no more than three months before he would drag a woman into some bushes and rape her. This would be the offence that would lead him to eventually make the acquaintance of bittaker Bitteker and Norris's friendship wasn't an immediate one by all accounts. It happened over a year. Bittiger describes Norris as an experienced criminal who hung around with hardened biker gang inmates, whereas Norris, says Bittiger, saved him from a beating. Whatever each has said about the other about being the driving bad influence, we can surmise that an unhealthy germination of shared sadistic fantasising throughout the rest of their incarceration. Their plans to kidnap, rape and torture teenage girls were probably made during this time and would be picked up again after both were released and they reunited on the outside in February 1979. With both men now willing to go through with their plan to make their perverse and deadly fantasies a reality, Bittica bought the aforementioned Murder Mac Van and they began practising their pick-up technique. Bittica's sociable reputation had extended to being popular with the local teenagers. Despite pleading not guilty at his trial, he admitted that he kept his motel room stocked with marijuana and beer for the teens that partied with him. An area of self-protection teaching I reinforce in my children's soft skills training is to be wary of much older individuals regularly hanging out with minors. It can, and often is innocuous, but a disproportionate number of notorious manipulative criminals enjoy the power of this type of position, but their age and experience grants them social power. The question should be asked, why is this individual not within their own obvious peer group? It might seem uncharitable, but it is foolish not to learn from what history has repeatedly shown us. We have already mentioned Dean Call, however before him Charles Smitty Schmidt, the Pied Piper of Tucson, also exerted a strong influence over the teens in his locality. Schmid, a bizarre figure who stuffed his cowboy boots with newspapers and beer cans to give himself extra height and attempted to emulate Elvis Presley by wearing pancake makeup, even going so far as to create a black beauty spot mole and even stretching his lower lip with a clothespin to recreate the King of Rock and Roll's trademark sneer, became a cult-like figure. Within the space of three years, he had killed three people, and in a shocking example of the generation gap, the local teens were doing their best to cover for him. Bittaker and Norris wasted little time to begin carrying out their plans. Their motivations and objectives might have been based on their own perverse pleasures, but the two premeditated their murders in a cold and calculated fashion. Looking at the way Bittaker had ingratiated himself into the teenage community, it could be theorised he was behaving much like the ant spiders I described in my Wear the Wolf episode. However, once the two were together, preparations became more overt. They bought the murder Mac van, and they began practising their pick-up technique. The student of self-protection should take a special note of this stage of the story. According to Norris, he and Bittica picked up around 20 hitchhikers before they began their reign of terror. None of these pickups ended in assault, but were dry runs to practice methods for luring victims away to secluded spots. There's an internet meme I once saw being circulated on social media, showing it outside prison gym. The photograph depicts an army of muscular and physically fit men performing a range of weightlifting exercises and calisthenics. The meme reads, Quote, remember, when you aren't training, they are. End quote. Cheap scaremongering? Symptoms of reality-based self-defence paranoia? Maybe, but I unashamedly shared it on my Facebook business page because there was a valid point. Not all of these convicted felons were preparing their bodies to better inflict violence on in their future victims. Most are probably simply doing it out of enjoyment as a channel to exercise boredom and for the natural buzzes people experience when they train. Others were probably doing it more defensively than offensively, building a type of armour to protect themselves. Just ask the wrongly convicted Antron McRae, one of the exonerated five, the therapeutic reasoning behind the powerful physique he began forging during his time in prison. Nevertheless, it serves as a symbol for the fact that many criminals spend time getting themselves ready to commit their crimes. The most famous scene in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver sees the film's hero, Travis Bickle, practicing drawing its concealed firearm in front of the mirror with the feed line, quote, You talking to me? End quote. That scene came to mind when Stevie B, an MMA self-defense and strength and conditioning coach who ran a full-time gym with his wife in ACOPS Green, Birmingham, told his assembled class a recent anecdote. These classes with Stevie were always very interesting, and I learned a lot during my brief time training with him. Stevie explained that a man had entered the gym with his wayward son and hoped that the youngster could begin martial arts training as a means for staying out of trouble. The child didn't show any especial interest in the programs being presented and as Stevie continued his conversation with the man, the son peeled off to visit the gym's weightlifting mirror. Stevie noticed out of the corner of his eye that the street kid was posturing up at the mirror and practicing his various glares. He told the story to illustrate the point I'm making here. Criminals often perform their own form of training. Don't be fooled into thinking that our self-defense skills are being developed to fight off purely instinctive and disorganized predators. Many criminals practice until they are ready to act, and the chances are by the time they have reached us, they have already accumulated a fair amount of field experience in their chosen crime. The student of counter-assault and self-protection education should note the dangers of duos that are deeply invested in their mutual criminal ventures. Not only does the criminal have the obvious problems of dealing with two assailants rather than one, but there is added social dynamic that every schoolchild faces when they are confronted with gangs of bullies. Either both individuals will egg each other on, making it more difficult to reason, or one of the two can exert a type of guru-like dominance. Given the nature of serious violent crime, the chances are these criminals both will have extreme antisocial psychological disorders that make for a marriage made in hell. Having said this, There have been several case studies where kidnapped victims have been able to play their captors off each other. In some cases, one of the two criminals is far less invested in the crime than the other and might even be involved through sheer fear of the other. One might assume that serial killer Dean Cole was far more invested in his sadistic crimes than his young accomplices, especially since one would eventually kill him to prevent a further murder. Kidnapped victims are often advised to build rapport with their captors to humanise themselves as best as possible. Despite a growing awareness of these tactics that has almost become a cliché in fiction, where we now see the kidnapper getting wise to what is being attempted, it can be hard to override social evolution. Even so, one technique does not work on all. Psychopathic criminals understand and are quite adept at mimicking empathy, but they do not feel it. Criminals with severe sadistic urges can be further motivated by pleas for help or mercy, as was the case with Bittaker and Norris. When your stress levels are through the roof and you're trying to gauge your immediate means for saving your life, it is still best to revert back to what has worked for most and be prepared to adapt and improvise. I'm basing this advice on the collective education that can be gleaned from numerous cases of survivors. At this point, we might as well discuss the value of fighting back. Many listeners might be alarmed to know that there is quite a lot of polarisation regarding fighting off would-be rapists. However, a good number of rapists and survivors have said that not fighting was the best course of action for the victim. This is seemingly proven by survivor cases where the victim chose to comply with the rapist's demands and escape with their life and sometimes no further injury. However, it is also contradicted by the large number of cases of people who did successfully fight off their attacker. Some rapists have confessed that they were deterred by those who fought back and others still, in line with their particular psychological predisposition, felt more anger towards those who did not resist. Norris, who was already a convicted rapist, said that it was Bittiger's plan from their earliest discussions to kill victims in order to prevent identification. Mind you, Norris would say that, and Bittiger has argued that it was Norris who suggested their first victim, Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, be killed, and he argued against this despite being the one they both agreed eventually killed her. This highlights the problem with compliance and high-risk situations. Again, no judgment call here. There is reasonable argument and legitimate case studies on the don't fight back side and I'm being biased given that I am a self-protection teacher. There are not only cases where serial killers have been reasoned with or tricked in order to facilitate the victim's escape after they've been raped, but there have been situations where rapists have been negotiated with that have somehow lessened the assault. However, you are relying on the attacker not being a murderer and you're placing your trust in someone who has given you no reason to trust them in the first place. I've titled this podcast, Trick or Toolbox, for the obvious alliterative appeal, and I apologise if it offends the families of victims of the crimes. The killers are examined on this show in the same way that a virologist or a doctor might look at the history of disease. This is a Halloween special, and the last murder was committed on Halloween, but these killers and any others I discuss on these shows have about as much in common with fantastical horror characters like Dracula or Freddy Krueger as a deluded and beloated invisible knockout master has to do with a Dragon Ball Z hero. This podcast will not unnecessarily dwell on the lurid details of the killings and how they were carried out, but rather how the killers operated and what we can learn to better harden future targets from such criminals. In my humble mitigation, I suggest we look at claiming back the word toolbox from Bittiger and Norris and apply it to our own metaphorical self-protection toolboxes. Please bear in mind that I'm coming at this from a clinical observer's point of view, doing my best to present something educational. We have to, and I'll use an American phrase here, play Monday morning quarterback. We are not trampling on the graves of five young lives. These were innocent human beings, frightened young girls who did nothing to deserve these crimes. The instructive knowledge we can gather from their mistakes and the benefit of our hindsight is still only buying us more lottery tickets and not guaranteeing a foolproof plan that will defeat victim selection and beat off human predators. With this in mind, and with my sympathy to all victims of such crimes, including their friends and family, I will proceed. The van nicknamed Murder Mac had been carefully chosen. The vehicle was windowless and had a side sliding door, which, according to Bittaker, would enable them to pull up close to a victim and not have to open the door all the way. For those who chose to hitchhike, or any pedestrian who sees an approaching van, these are reasonable warning signs. Just as wearing a long coat, particularly on hot sunny days, is far from definite proof that a person is concealing a weapon, it can build up a picture when one's survival instincts come into play. Be wary of the side sliding door. Bittaker and Norris were possibly the worst type of offender a young vulnerable person could hope to encounter. When they picked a victim, they would not be deterred and were relentless in carrying out their crime to its grisly conclusion. There were no examples given of Bittaker and Norris making a run for it, or moving away from the victim. Looking at their five murders, we note that both compliance and fighting off did nothing to stop them torturing and killing their victims. Lucinda Schaefer had left a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. She was a very sensible 16-year-old girl who'd refused their temptations of marijuana or a lift home when they drove along beside her at around 7.46pm as she walked along a side street. In the end, they drove on ahead and parked in a driveway. From there, Norris gave a feed line before pouncing on her and dragging her into the van. Again, the feed line is a very important part of the interview technique for many predators. Bittiger's signally written account commends the poor girl on her self-control and composure, accepting her fate after her initial screaming. If we are to believe each of these two men's accounts, and we have no reason to do so, that there was disagreement between them regarding the girl's fate, Schaefer was ultimately unable to appeal to whichever one's better nature. Her self-protection story is a tragedy of not being lured by the Hansel and Gretel trap, screaming to alert attention, being calm to assess her situation, and finally doing her best to verbally dissuade her attackers. With the benefit of clinical hindsight, we note we can see that her first problem was being alone when she walked out in the evening. However, this was the norm at the time. Schaefer probably had done this trip many times. Schaefer was not hitchhiking. Refusing temptations and continuing to walk on is sound advice, but at this point a target can be hardened by recognising the potential danger. She was probably a bit in denial over the rat mounting risk and hoped that the two would just leave her alone. Again, Bittiger and Norris had become chameleons by this stage, merging with the local culture, and this type of thing probably wasn't unheard of. Lecherous older men prowling Californian beaches and side streets were far from unusual. Contextually, one might argue that we were a decade out of the summer of love where people had become altogether more wary of soliciting strangers and serial killing was on a steep ascent. There were several notorious killers who had been brought to justice who were at large in the USA at that time and it was very much in the zeitgeist. The head of the World Combat and British Combat Association and self-defense pioneer Peter Considine wrote an excellent book called Streetwise that gives good advice on how to handle someone following you. I'm not familiar with Redondo Beach or any of the places where the girls were abducted but I'm assuming they were. It is important to know how to use an environment to your advantage. Know the safe spots. Know your sanctuaries. One basic rule is to try to walk on the side of the road where vehicles are coming towards you rather than coming from behind you. It's a lot more difficult to abduct somebody that way. 18 year old Andrea Joy Hall was hitchhiking on the day when she was murdered by Bittaker and Norris. However, it wasn't this activity that directly got her killed. The two killers had seen her walking along the Pacific Coast Highway and had slowed down to give her a lift. They were beaten to it by another vehicle. Undeterred, they followed the vehicle to Redondo Beach. Once she was dropped off, the two lurked nearby with Norris hiding in the back this time, giving the impression that Bittica was alone. Bittica offered Hall a drink from the cooler installed in the back of his van. The young girl accepted the offer and when she went to retrieve it, was ambushed by the waiting Norris. The self protection lessons from this instance are quite obvious and provide more of an example of how older predators can immerse themselves in younger culture, exploiting their naivety. Situational awareness is paramount. The world is full of nice people, but question why a stranger in that circumstance would offer you a drink from the back of his van. Again, this is another example of being alone and therefore easy target. Hall did fight back hard when Norris pounced. Tragically, this was not enough to dissuade or scare off her attackers and Norris twisted her arm behind her back. I won't go into the details of the ordeals that followed, only to say that the poor girl was taken to three different locations as the two killers avoided possible detection by another vehicle. As if to demonstrate that victims don't have to be alone to be targeted, the next tragedy was a double homicide. Jackie Doris Gilliam, aged 15, and Jacqueline Lee Lamp, aged just 13, were hitchhiking and accepted the offer of a lit from the two killers, who spotted them sitting on a bus stop bench located close to Amosa Beach. They also accepted the marijuana on offer. When the two noticed they were headed in the wrong direction, they protested and lamp attempted to flee by opening the sliding door. She was knocked out and Gilliam also put up a struggle before being punched in the face to stop her alerting potential witnesses. The two girls were held captive for almost two days in the San Gabriel Mountains, a location that had been chosen prior to the first time the two men had killed. Neither of the two girls won over their murderers during that time. It is hard to say what exactly they could have done against these fully grown and experienced criminal killers as they spent most of their time bound and gagged and with one of the two men keeping guard at all times during the rest of their captive lives. This illustrates why pre-instant training is so important and shouldn't just be given lip service. Everything from this point on in their tragedy was reactive. Nevertheless, the two girls actually showed some good survival instincts. They didn't buy the stories told by their abductors once they realised something was up and they put up a fight. Later, when this failed, Gilliam acted in a more subdued and cooperative manner. As far as the terrible infight situation goes, all good self-protection teachers offer no guarantees. Even experienced and hardened adult individuals have been murdered. The most switched on have their off days and training can fail anyone. However, survivors of similar cases of abduction have combined luck with opportunism. I teach my child students tactical escape, training from compromised situations and use of incidental weaponry. They are pressure tested, they are not shielded from life's harsh realities, and they are expected to adapt in situations. We have already touched upon the tragic final case of Shirley Lynette Bedford, whose recorded cries helped Bittiger away and gained both killers their terrible media title as the Toolbox Killers. She was hitchhiking, like the previous two victims before her, on her way home from a Halloween party, but her reason for taking the lift was because she recognised Bittiger. This is a reminder that despite the nature of the previous killings, stranger danger is a gimmicky myth. Most female and child victims are more likely to be attacked by people they know. As many young people attend Halloween parties, it's important that they go in clued up, with in case of emergency numbers on their fully charged phones, and that they arrange their lifts home at agreed times. Being open and informative about these matters with youngsters, as well as culturally and socially aware of your times, prevents the Charles Schmitz, Dean Calls and Lawrence Bittigas of this world from developing tools of manipulation on our young. There should be a strategy in place when teenagers go out so that they know that they have an adult who can retrieve them from a situation at any time. Although two of these victims were together, one was barely a teenager, hardly making for a hard target. As a rule, having a solid group of friends when going out can be a very effective deterrent. There is no magic answer. Inspire the young to identify as fighters. Live their everyday life on the front foot. Be physically active, allow situational awareness to be contextual, people, places, times, hazards, changes, and adapt behavior accordingly. Let trusted people know where they are, trust their own instincts, and never give up. Thank you for downloading this extra edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share an online review and rating via social media and or your preferred online sharing platform. For more information on Club Chimera Martial Arts, please check out clubchimera.com and also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to our regular podcast show. Thanks for listening.